Welcome to Radioactive, KUOW's youth program. My name is Mamansa Dogra. I had an interview with Hari Kondavolu, a comedian, on minority representation in the media. Here's a whole interview. Okay, so let's start from the beginning and how you got into the world of stand-up comedy. Um, I started doing stand-up when I was 17 years old. Uh, I started a comedy night in my high school called Comedy Night. I went to Townsend Harris High School. And uh, I wanted to do stand-up when I was probably 14 or 15 because I saw Margaret Cho perform. Uh, this is this is like the early days of Comedy Central where they aired the same things over and over again. So she had an HBO special. I remember she was wearing a leather bodysuit. And they just kept re-airing it over and over again. Hers and Janine Garofalo's, I remember. I just watched the both of them. But especially Margaret, just because I'd never seen an Asian-American comedian. And she was a woman and... Uh, you know, she talked about her parents and where she grew up and, and she was making people laugh and her voice was as valid as any other voice. And it was empowering to to see that. Even though, again, she was a woman and Korean-American, even as an Indian-American man, I felt very connected to her. Um, and that was a, you know, a, a breakthrough. Like, well, we can do this. Like, the boundaries are not what I thought they were. Because before it was just black, white, Latino, and I thought that was it, you know, because there were, the only voice we had publicly was Apu, which is a white guy's voice on The Simpsons. So the idea of um, an Indian American stand-up, like it seems so out of the question, but it was inspiring. And I wanted to start a comedy night, and I wanted it my junior year of high school, and they wouldn't let me have it for whatever reason. So I ran to be the vice president of the student council, and I won and my only agenda really was to start a comedy night. So it was, I really was a single issue kind of candidate. So it was, it was, it was. Uh, my agenda was starting that comedy night, and I did. And uh, you know, I just assumed I would do it once, and I would get it out of my system, and it would be something I, you know, I would do it once, and I was excited about it. But I didn't think it was something that once you did it, you'd be addicted to it. That you constantly had to perform, and I. I was like once I did it, like I went to college, I went to Bowdoin College in Maine, Brunswick, Maine, and I did it throughout my time um, in college. And uh, it was difficult because, you know, I, I grew up in Queens, New York. It's the most diverse place in the world. And Maine is a very diff- you know, different, you know, it's a very white place. There wasn't much diversity. The word diversity was something that was used, which in Queens, you don't use the word diversity because that's just what it is. Everyone's from everywhere. So diversity as a concept, as something that's uh, almost commodified, is something that like happened when I went to college. Like, oh, that's a thing of value to you? Like, it's not just everyday life. Um, and I think I hated standing out in that way. Like, and stand up let me stand out in the way I chose to stand out. Like, I had control of it. Like, peop- I, I was choosing people to, like, I wanted people to look at me. And I was choosing the terms of how they looked at me. And I was choosing how I wanted to speak about myself. And that was not something I could do when people were asking me questions, where are you from? And they didn't mean Queens, they meant India or whatever. You know, like, this was a, a great way for me to have control. And a lot of my early stuff, I think, was very stereotypical. It was very hacky. It was, I just wanted to make people laugh. And I think when you start doing comedy, that's all everybody wants just to make people laugh like whatever it takes and so i didn't really have an ethos i didn't have like a this is this is the way these are my values and as as a person these are my values as an artist i didn't have that i just wanted to make people laugh and uh, after 911 um i started questioning everything my politics changed i became a lot more thoughtful about the world. I started questioning the violence I was seeing. I was questioning the deportation and detention of of immigrants and the hate crimes that were happening even in Queens to South Asians and Muslims and Arabs and, you know, uh, then thinking about anti-black racism. I was thinking about all these things I don't think I I really had a 
complete understanding of until I started to really delve into it when I was in school after 9-11. And then all of a sudden, my stand-up on stage, like the stand-up I was doing didn't match my values anymore because I was doing these things that were very corny and would just make people laugh, did accents and uh, talked about my family in very simple ways, nothing that really had any of my real voice in it. And then I started, and I started to share my points of view, which was hard, the adjustment both for me and for an audience that wasn't expecting it. And then uh, I moved to Seattle. I worked at an immigrant rights organization. Uh, it was called Hate Free Zone. It's now called One America. I was an immigrant rights organizer. I worked with um, uh, people who were victims of hate crimes and people who, had, who were in detention centers or whose family members were in detention centers and victims of workplace discrimination. And I did comedy at night in Seattle because it was a really strong scene. I never thought it would be professional because I, I remember doing comedy in New York on breaks from school and how brutal it was and how hard it was and how mean people were and how you had to pay for stage time and bring all your friends to shows. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. That's not fun. But in Seattle, it was different. It was a smaller scene where I could stand out and do what I wanted to do with really smart crowds who had great attention spans and I got to develop here and I did it as a way to like both as a break from work you know when the really tough work day was done but also like you know I realized that I at each moment in high school and college I kept saying I'm, I'm done that, that was it I got it out of my system I realized I couldn't get it out of my system it was my form of expression it was my form of communication it was I didn't know how else to be and even if I didn't do it professionally I had to do it and I got discovered in Seattle because I did the Bumbershoot Festival in 2006 it was a local stage the HBO Comedy Festival found me. They were a big festival at the time that discovered new talent. And uh, I sent in some audition tapes, and I got it. I got the festival. And the same week I got the festival, the news about getting the festival, I found out that Jimmy Kimmel Live wanted me on their show. And it was the same week. I wasn't prepared for it because I was still working at the or nonprofit organization. And it was like, what's going on in my life right now? And so I flew down. I took a day off from work, flew from Seattle to L.A., did my set, very nervous, not my best set. I was so nervous to do it because what am I doing on TV? I never expected to be on TV. I never expected for this to feel professional. Like I was just a hobby I had. I enjoyed doing it. I loved to do it. And I would do it even if I wasn't paid to do it. And uh, I flew back to Seattle the next day after I was on TV and went back to work. And it was weird. His people were like, oh, you were on TV last night. That's, that's weird. I'm like, yeah. And I think I didn't want to admit that it was becoming more serious. And I remember... Um, my boss, uh, you know, the, the head, the executive director, Pramila Jayapal, who now like uh, has one elected office and wonderful leader. I remember her telling me, "This is this is going to be it. You're gonna you're gonna be a comedian." I'm like, "No, no, no. I'm an organizer. That's what I'm doing. I'm going to grad school for because I had gotten into LSE, the London School of Economics, for a human rights program because I wanted a a mat. I wanted a human rights background for the organizing. I'm like, I'm going to school next year, and this is what I'm doing. She's like, No, but you're good." And this is going to be your career. And I didn't believe her. Like, I'm like, no, absolutely not. And I went to London and I got a manager, all this stuff. And I told my manager, I'm like, I appreciate the fact that you think I could do this professionally, but I need to take time off to, to go to school. Like, it's important that I go to school. And I don't know if I want to do this. And they said they'd wait. I went to London. I didn't do much comedy, uh, maybe a few times in London, but I really didn't enjoy it because it was a new place. And I just wanted to focus on grad school. And I did. And then towards the end of my time, I had a couple of units left, and I got a call from Comedy Central. And they wanted me to fly out to New York to do a show called Live at Gotham, which was a stand-up show. So I, I missed a unit on South African Truth and Reconciliation. That was the unit I missed, which I still feel guilty about. I flew back to the U.S., to New York, practiced my act I hadn't done all year, you know, for the week. I did it um, uh, on TV 
then I flew back to London, finished my dissertation, did my finals, and after spending all that time and money to get this degree, I decided I want to be a stand-up comedian full-time. And that's what I did. I moved back. I went to Seattle for three more months to regain my sense of stand-up. I hadn't done it in forever. And I moved to New York, and I really started the professional journey of this, which has its ups and downs, but certainly um, has been incredible, an incredible experience. But that's how I started getting into stand-up. I, I kind of fell into it. It's something I love to do, and I got lucky. So in your earlier stand-up experiences, did you feel like you were kind of exploiting your cultural background for laughs? I definitely felt I exploited my cultural background for laughs. I felt like I wasn't being particularly thoughtful about it because at the end of the day, it was about making people laugh and whatever it took is whatever it took. I didn't really care what it, what it was. You know, I had very few limits when I was 17, 18, 19. Like, you know, the, the stuff I saw on TV, you saw that. You felt normal. I, I didn't have a sense of this is not what I feel comfortable with, or are you laughing at me or are you laughing with me? You know, that, that distinction. And I was being laughed at, but I didn't really care because it was a laugh, and a laugh is the hardest thing to get, and to be able to make people laugh is so wonderful. Um, and I still want to make people laugh. That's still my goal. If I don't make people laugh, I failed at my job, but I have a, a set of values. I have things I believe both as a human being and as an artist, and I try to stick with it. Um, do you feel that this is a rather common problem that people who are minorities or people who are from different ethnic backgrounds often exploit their backgrounds for laughs? Like, was this something that was normal in the industry at the time you were working in it? I think exploit is a tricky word. I think it, it becomes an easy thing to fall the fall back on. And I think some people do exploit it. I don't think everybody exploits. I think some people, but it is an easy thing to fall back on to see where it goes and not say something thoughtful about it. I think stereotypes are easy. I think they're they're common. I think they're uh, if you can hear it at a bar or if you could hear it by some racist, why do you really want to partake in it? It's not that difficult. Um, it, it's it's been done and it's not interesting. In addition to the the moral part of it, uh, wh- whether you should ethically promote these kinds of things. Um, but I do think you know. Every young comic, any comedian that starts, the idea of silence is terrifying. The idea that a joke didn't work is terrifying. And you just want to make people laugh. And if this gets you the laugh and this prevents silence, then it's a success. And, you know, I don't, you know, I I sometimes regret, oh, why did I say those things? But I also know that was part of my journey. And I think when you're creating art, sometimes you start in places that you know you're not proud of but you end up in a place you need to end up and if i didn't make mistakes and learn and figure out who i actually was on stage and off i wouldn't be who i am today as a person and artist so you know i think that's the same for a lot of people i do think though there are some people who realize it's a formula that works for them and they continue doing it and that's i'm not you know that's their choice i understand this is also a business and you need to to make money and that's if that's how you feed your family fine but that that to me I couldn't do that I don't want to do that how accurately do you feel that the media or in your in your specific role like um stand-up comedy portrays the stories of minorities um I think it's getting better the depictions of uh you know people of color but I still think it's it's uh it's not as accurate as it should be I think part of that is not only do you need actors of color, you need people who are producing who are people of color. You need writers of color. You need people who can actually sh- share the experience and not have white male writers writing the stories of people they don't have actual, like they don't actually understand, like they, they, act, they haven't lived that experience. So 
it's getting better. And even like a figure like Shonda Rhimes, like she's somebody who's producing so many television shows and whether or not you like the quality, at least like there, she's giving voices to a lot of people that didn't have voices before. Um, and I think that's very important. That's very powerful. I mean, the fact that Totally Biased, which was a show that I used to write for and I appeared on, my friend W. Kamau Bell was the host, Chris Rock executive produced it. And I think that says a lot. I think it's important, especially um, the folks who have made it, to try to give back and be like, look, I have to continue this because if I don't bring you up, who's going to bring you up? You know, this is a, a still a, very much a white country. It's still very much a country that... Um, is playing to an imaginary Midwestern audience that they think can't handle difference, which I think does, you know, people a disservice. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's up to us to challenge and it's up to us to make that change. And it's changing. The Internet also changes things because you can produce your own content. And it's not like people are putting things on air because they think it's the right thing to do and that diversity is a value. That's not really why they do it. They do it because they think it makes money. So if they prove that this thing that a person of color made was successful online for free and was very good and they have a big following, they'll give them a show or they'll give them an opportunity, not because they think it's the right thing to do, because there's money involved. This is a business. You know, it's, I know it's very cynical, but it's, it's true. This is about money. This isn't about fairness. So I think, I think things have changed. I think the Internet has really opened it up, and I think there are people taking more risks as a result. Also, as an Indian American, like one of the very one of the few Indian Americans that are in the comedy business, mm. do you feel pressure to have to represent your entire background? And if so, like how do you deal with that? I feel less pressure to represent everybody than I used to because I think there's more voices now than there ever have been. Um, doing stand up, you know, there's there's more than just two or three. You know, there's there's a there's a lot more both in stand-up and improv on television. Um, I feel some pressure, I suppose, not to make things worse, to exploit stereotypes and make our lives worse. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want that. Like, I think Apu has done that. You know what I mean? I don't want to further that. But I can't, I can't be a voice for everybody. There's tons of, like, Indian Americans who hate what I do. I'm not for them. They come because they see in other comics that they like and they think I'm going to do the same thing, which is stupid. You know, that's not how individuals work. We all have different personalities. We grew up differently. And so, you know, I'm happy with who I am. And I talk about the world that upsets me and I'm aggressive about it. And I try to find jokes in really dark places. That's not for everybody. For a lot of people, they're like, why, why is this funny? Why is that a joke? Why are you talking about that? Because this is who I am. This is how I talk off stage too. And, you know, at a certain point, you know, I got to a place where I'm like, I'm going to represent me. It has to be me. And maybe, and I would rather people come to my shows because they can identify with the things I'm talking about and they can identify with me, not solely because I'm Indian American or South Asian American, because they like the content, because they understand the content. They feel the content should be supported. And the best way to do that is to be your truest self. Yeah, actually, um, speaking about that, um, how do you react to negative feedback from racially or socially charged jokes? Um, it depends on who's making the feedback. Okay. I think, you know, it depends on what the feedback is. Some people just hate me talking about race or hate me talking about, you know, gender or sexuality or whatever else I think is important for for me to discuss. And I think I have an angle on that's interesting and important to share, like, and funny, most importantly, 
you know, if 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 it's a criticism about like why are you talking about these things or you know, oh you're using this as a crutch, like all you talk about is these things. It's like I don't let that bother me because I know what I'm doing and I know what I want to do, and that's just noise. I can avoid it. Um, but when someone has something critical that's thoughtful, you know, sometimes you know I, I I consider it, but sometimes it's like I hear what you're saying, but I can't change immediately. Do you know what I mean? I think sometimes people expect when they give you feedback that you're going to take it, even if you like their feedback, even if you think it's interesting. Like I've heard people say, you're still doing that joke. I mentioned this last time I saw you that I didn't like you doing that. I'm like, I don't know who you are. I've met you once. I said your feedback was good. That doesn't mean I'm going to take it. It doesn't mean I'm going to accept it. And it doesn't mean that I'm ready to change it. It takes time. And that's not going to make everybody happy. But I think... You know, I think people, especially online, they'll write comments and they'll say things and then they assume people will take it to heart and have to change what they do. I, I'm on my own journey. I have to find my way there. And so I certainly don't want to hurt people. And I'm very conscious of the moments where I've hurt people to try to, to fix it the next time and be more thoughtful about it. But unfortunately, that's part of the journey of art. I think that you can't help but offend or hurt people. And I, I don't mind offending people. I think... I would rather offend the people I want to offend. I want those strikes to be targeted and and hit the points I want to hit. But I miss sometimes, and I hurt people sometimes. And I have to decide whether it's worth it or not. And that's something that I think a lot of comedians think about, and I certainly obsess about that. Um, But at the end of the day, I I have to trust myself. You know, and I've struggled with that. Like, sometimes I, I question, like, am I, do I really trust myself? I mean, do I... You know, am, am I doing uh, more good than harm? But at the end of the day, you have to trust yourself. That's, that's, there's, you have to feel, especially at a certain time when you've done something long enough that you know what you're doing. And even if you actually don't know what you're doing, I think the confidence to at least pretend you know what you're doing is, is big. Because at least you, you can make choices and you can take risks. Even if those risks fail, it's important that you take the risk. So, you know, I, I have people I trust. I have people I'm close with. I have people that keep me in check, whether it's family or friends who have the same values I have. And if I'm saying something that they think is really worth questioning, I trust them to keep me in check, and they have historically. And so, you know, I I don't always listen to people I don't know, and if I do, it's because it really made an impact. But I'm selective, you know. I have to trust myself. Out of curiosity, do you have any stories about that? About what? About uh, um, being checked by people who share the same values as you. Yeah, um, God, it happens often, so it's hard to um, it's hard to say. I mean, I'll tell you this one story, which isn't by somebody I actually knew very well, but actually made an impact. Um, there's a lot of examples I can't even think of because it happens often. It's just whenever I do a new joke, my friends will kind of sh- so it's not even something I even think about anymore. You know. But um, I was doing a joke, they call it my feminist dick joke, and it's about the idea that, um, you know, there are men who say a woman can't be president because um, they have their period once a month and they have PMS and and they'll go crazy and they'll destroy the country. And, you know, it's the idea that a woman, because of her biology, has her judgment impaired once a month and I happen to be a man with a penis and testicles and my judgment's impaired every five to seven minutes, right? Um, And... uh, you know, I call it my feminist dick joke, and it's a good joke, and I'm proud of that joke, and I think it, it is, it is, it is thoughtful, and it, and it's something that you know stands for women's rights, and and I appreciate the joke. Um, and I tried to be deliberate with the wording as much as I can by saying happens to have a penis and testicles, because that also says that gender is not just something that is about body parts, right? 
and that gender is something that's shaped and it's inclusive of the transgender community and it's a subtle thing, but it's subtle. It's not like I'm talking about gender theory in the joke. I'm also performing in the basements of sports bars, sometimes to drunk audiences, and I'm already talking about feminism, which is making it hard enough. How do I make it accessible to them? And jokes also often require some degree of surprise and speed. You know, I talk a lot already. I mean, I, when I have a joke that's quick, it's, it's helpful for pacing. Somebody came up to me after the show, and uh, he was a trans man, and um, he was upset by that joke because he felt that it took him out of it because I defined, to him, I defined a man as someone who has a penis and testicles and a woman who has this biological process, and that's, that's unfair. And, and I said that he was right, that like I did do some of that, and I tried to be as careful as I could with the wording, but ultimately, you know, I didn't draw that distinction. And the reason I didn't is because I felt like there was a value still in the joke, and it was an important joke to make. And also, if I have to break that down, it's a hard enough joke to make with a general audience. If I have to break that down, I might lose them. And so much of this is timing and how you do it. And I asked, because I, I, as much as I could explain that, and it was logical to me, and I still stand behind it, you know, I saw the hurt on his face, and you can't really explain that away. You know what I mean? Hurt is hurt. That's not something that's logical. It's hurt. And I asked, is the reason why he felt hurt? Because he felt this was a place where he was safe because of what I do, and he just didn't expect that. And he said, yeah. Like, there's a reason that he loves my comedy so much. And that felt hurtful, even though he knew that's not my intent. Um. So what I ended up doing, I kept the joke, which was hard to keep. And I didn't do it for a little while, but I ended up keeping it because I feel like it's an important joke. But on the album, on my album, I added a part that addresses the fact that, you know, that, you know, hurry, can you, because the end of the joke is, hurry, can you write a feminist dick joke? Uh, yes, it can be done. But can you write a joke that doesn't reinforce gender binaries? And then I go into this whole rant where I go back and forth being checked on that. So I kind of added that a character that would check me in that moment. And that joke's not for everybody and for every audience. And there's some audiences I know, like, they're not going to get this. But I try to do it as much as I can because at least it, it for the people that do appreciate it and do get it or who are trans, they know I'm with you and I'm trying and I understand and I'm calling myself out. Um, and it's rare I do that, but I think it's important when, when a comedian does do that where they call themselves out in, in a way because it shows the audience that they're being aware. And that's actually funny and thoughtful. Um, so that's an example of when I think I was, I don't think, I, I don't think calling out is the right word where I was, where someone gave me their thoughts and I actually thought about it and it made a lot of sense to me and I found a way to address it in my stand up. Yeah. So how accessible is the world of stand up comedies to minorities, both as viewers and as participants? Well, as viewers, anybody can watch stand up. I mean, so that's, you know, that's universal, but as, as performers, I think it depends on levels. You know, if you want to do stand-up, anybody can do stand-up. You go to an open mic, you put your name on a list, and you go on stage and you do it. I've been to shows where homeless people have done sets, you know, because there's if there's no fee, anyone has the right to speak as long as they put their name on the list. And sometimes for people, it's just cathartic to go on stage, and it's almost therapeutic, right, just to share their truth. And that's wonderful. It's, again, a great equalizer in stand-up. Anyone can do it. I think there can be barriers or different levels, you know, like, 
you know, I think people of color and minorities don't always get the same opportunities and breaks. I know that me being a very political person of color, only recently did I start getting booked at certain places because I've hit a certain level of success where, you know, they can take risks on comics that they think are safe. When a comic, especially who's a person of color, is taking making strong stances and might alienate part of the audience, you have to prove that you can draw an audience and that you're going to be successful and make the money. You have to be, you can't just be good, you have to be great. And so that's, and that's true of the world. Like when you're a minority, good isn't good enough. You have to be great. You have to be excellent just to keep up. And I think the same is true in comedy. It's harder to be average. There's a lot of average white people I see in comedy, but they get by. I'm not going to name names. I think that, you know, like whatever. But I see enough people where I think, okay, I get it. You're you're pretty or you can play this character because there's more roles for you or like that joke is a joke that most audience will will just get and you don't need to add too much context to it. And I've heard that before, but fine. But I think for, you know, minority groups, you have to explain more and you have to reach a mainstream audience. You have to humanize yourself, which is terrible because you're human and it should be obvious. But if you're if people don't see enough of you, didn't grow up with your image or didn't grow up with people that look like you, they don't know what to do with you still. Even though it's getting better, you still have to you still have to kind of lay the, the groundwork for that. I think it's harder. Um it's not to say it's impossible. It is possible. It's not to say it's not changing. It's not to say again that the internet hasn't made such an impact where people can um you know, can rise. I mean, there's so many voices. If you go on YouTube, there's so many, like there's like, like there's an Asian American YouTube and there's a black YouTube, you know, there's so many places where people can like, um, make comedy and share their voices and become accessible. Like Lily Singh has done such an incredible job. And like Lily Singh is not somebody like most Americans would know, but she's made a name for herself. She's playing the Moore theater in Seattle. I mean, she's somebody who, who has gotten to that level without the mainstream lifting her. She lifted herself. And so, She'll get what's due. She'll get her money, you know, and she'll get her opportunities because she's marketable. And I think that's that's new. You know, you you can make your own audience. And so it's still difficult. And using conventional channels can still be difficult uh, for minority groups. Um, there can still be challenges. But there's now other ways. And so I'm hopeful, even though I think it's still harder. So as an Indian American and as a person of color, did you feel limited in what roles you could portray? In terms of acting, I've never loved acting, but you know, I've done some of it. And, and yeah, I mean, the parts I get asked to audition for, for the most part, have been not particularly great, either stereotypical or even if my lines weren't stereotypical, I found something racist in it that I didn't feel comfortable being around. Um, occasionally I'll get something good, you know, but it, for the most part, I'm not interested even in auditioning even though auditioning even if it's a terrible script is a good practice i don't like being in a room having to say those words that offend me and not offend me it's not that they offend me they upset me offense is is it's it's a word people use because they don't want to deal with the fact that other people are getting hurt or they have a logic behind why they don't like a thing offense is an empty word it's not offense it doesn't offend me it upsets me logically as a human being who's thinking um but like i don't want to do that so often I you know I, I make my own opportunities that's the great thing about being a stand-up comedian is that they can't stop you on stage they can't tell you what to say you're in control and I like that more than acting because it's I'm doing someone else's bidding when I'm reading someone else's script um, 
so yeah, no, I I definitely think it's getting better. Like Aziz and Mindy Kaling are great examples of people and who get work. Help and there's a lot of actors, Asif Manvi, who are getting great parts. But I think still, while there's this incredible progress, there's also still this remnant of another era of people writing nonsense and people still laughing at stereotypes or not making well-built characters. That's still there. And I still get offered those things to audition for those things, and I won't do it. So, you know, I think my acting takes a hit because I'm really selective, but I also know that, like, my soul doesn't take a hit, so I'm good with it. Okay, and one more question. What is some advice you would give to people of color or South Asian Americans who want to break into the world of comedy? I think this advice is universal. If you want to break into the world of comedy, you just have to do it. You know, I, and, I, and I would say also it becomes very easy to bring all your friends to shows and have them laugh. The challenge is to do it when they're not there. Uh, I would say don't just play ethnically specific rooms. Play all rooms. Learn to play different audiences. Learn to be challenged. Even if the crowd is rough and difficult, play that room. Like, because that's going to make you, you know, it'll teach you more skills. Um, you know, write a range of things. You know, you're not just a South Asian American. You're not just an Indian American. Write about that experience. Don't deny yourself your identity. But you're also a full human. Write about the range of human experiences you have. This is something I've struggled with. I mean, I've focused on race for a good part of my career. And I always will, I think, unfortunately, because I see I don't see racism disappearing. But you know, I've forced myself to write about other things because I'm a full person. I don't talk about race 24 hours a day. I talk, I, I live my life. I watch movies. I read books. I, you know, I hang out with my mom. I have arguments with my friends. I'm, you know, I, I fall in love. I get my heart broken. All the things humans experience. Write about everything, you know, and don't, you know, because I think it's just like when I started doing comedy, the idea of silence scares people. So I wrote about things that were easier for me to write about and that I, that were crutches or stereotypes or even when I was outside of talking about race or culture I was still doing like jokes that were easy because I just wanted to make people laugh and of course I understand that urge and you should do what makes you happy but like I would say challenge yourself as much as possible listen and watch uh, as much comedy as possible and don't be afraid like you just have to go up there and do it and that's true with any young comedian you have to go up there and take the beating because it's a hard thing and you're going to fail a lot. And that's just what comedy is. I fail all the time when I write new stuff. That's just the nature of comedy. And you have to be willing to take that because you'll get better. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview of Hari Kondabolu by myself, Mamansa Dogra, from KUAW's youth program, Radioactive. Thanks for listening. <laughs>